0: All right, let's get started this morning. Some good conversation already, but let's continue that as we head towards the end of our commitment series. We've got a commitment to discipleship this week, and we'll wrap up next week with a commitment to thanksgiving. So, a commitment to discipleship. 1 Corinthians 12 is where we're going to do some study, and so you can turn there. We're going to try to find the connection between discipleship and relationship, all right? Two ships are sailing. We want them to collide, uh, crash together, and see what that looks like in 1 Corinthians 12. So you can let your eyes start drifting through that text if you haven't already to see a connection between discipleship and relationship. But let's back up and just think through some definitions. First of all... Uh, What are we talking about when we talk about a disciple? What is a disciple? How would you define that? Otherwise, we're going to be going through this whole class, talking about discipleship and not really having some frame of reference. So what's a disciple? What do you think? a a A student. Great word. What else can we add to that? A follower. What else?
1: Someone taught by.
0: Someone taught by. All right. Student and follower are probably the, the, the key answers there when you think of a disciple. Um, the following we'll talk about a little bit in the morning service to make sure even that word finds a little bit of definition, unless we just talk about following the Lord and that has no practical meaning to us during the week. Um, but following, following the teaching of, uh, following the example of, uh, obeying the commands of. Uh, this is a disciple, a follower of Jesus, a student. Uh, we might, in semi-modern terms, think of an apprentice, somebody who's a learner, student of, somebody who knows what they're doing. Um, you might hear even just in the in the context of like sports, um, especially with our Kansas City Chiefs coach uh, Andy Reid, they'll talk about a coaching tree, or they'll say he was a disciple of Andy Reid. Uh, he was under that coaching tree, uh, and there was influence there. They learned, they studied under, they benefited from the teaching or instruction of. So the word is is very practical. Don't don't feel like this is some religious word. It was very much a secular word. Um, Any philosopher, teacher could have disciples, student followers. Um, The hardship is oftentimes in the gospels we see the disciples as followers of Jesus, but it was very much geographical. It was spatial. They literally followed Jesus where he went. Um, And because we don't do that, our minds here following, and we read in the Gospels, and we fail to bridge to our day what this means for us to get up and walk around and go places, but actually in a mode of following Jesus. All right, so a disciple is a follower. We're talking about following Jesus, but that probably needs some definition as well. So where does following begin? What's the starting place of following Jesus? Roy? Regeneration. Regeneration. Um, there has to be that, that trust in him for salvation. That, that's where it begins. It may not be a long path of following, but it's the turning from sin, turning to Jesus. Um, it, you could think of it as a valuing. I, I, I am now devaluing the pursuit of my own righteousness or the pleasure of sin, I'm seeing that's not it. And now I'm seeing this value in the righteousness of Christ, forgiveness that's offered, eternal life. So I turn from sin, that's the repentance. I turn to Jesus, that's the faith. Uh, there is where following begins. So, how does following continue? If it begins at salvation, what does continual following mean?
1: I got a question. So would you say... No,
0: I had the question. <laughs> yes. Are you saying you can't be a disciple without regeneration? Yes. I think. <laughs> what, uh, does that, what causes the,
1: the question? Because I think I've run into different uh, circumstances where someone said, yeah, I'm a disciple. And you ask the question, okay, so when did you begin trusting... Or when did you see your need of a savior? Well, I've never needed it. And like, well, so then it seemed like there's never a point.
0: Right. I think that's I think it's a common misconception in looking at the scriptures and seeing discipleship, and we think, oh, well, these were the elite ones. Like they they were the the twelve, and to follow Jesus as a disciple meant something other. So that was Elite Christianity and the rest of us, you know, are just getting by. But when we look at the examples of Jesus saying, you know, come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow, uh, that's, that's that language of total abandon, like I'm done with self. I'm now a living sacrifice. Um, so, yes, we, we would say apart from regeneration and that initial act of following Christ for salvation, uh, yeah, you're not a disciple we're not gonna give somebody that title when they're not truly ready to learn from the Lord and the master of the disciples. I, the question. I did too, so we're, it, <laughs> what was it? Uh, how, what does it look like to continue? What, what do we call the continuing following? Or any other questions? I was just gonna throw
1: into that. The thing that complicates that is I, I think that you could reasonably say that Jesus' disciples were not believers, when he called them. They saw something but I don't, I mean, figuring out when they actually were regenerate is, is a, an argument for the side of us, but I think that it's reasonable to say they were genuine, genuinely regenerated at their call.
0: Yeah, reasonable is probably a good word. Like you said, there's not a clear definition there. Um, of they said this or in this moment, you know, put their faith in Christ, those kind of things. Um, the reasonableness will even come out in our Matthew 4 text today and in their response. So, yeah, good observation. Daniel? Your
1: answer is sanctification.
0: Right, yeah, it's the, it's the life of obedience, sanctification. We're being changed into the image of Christ. Um, that sounds good like oh god's changing us to be more like Christ we're you know but the part that we don't often like hearing is you know the great commission you know teaching them to observe all the things that he commanded us it's just obedience uh, and obedience gets a bad name like somehow that's like the ugly side of you know the christian life when when the the, the pretty side is you know the resort life is oh yeah we can just Love God, and he's changing us, and we're more like Christ. Um, So you look out the front door of the resort, right, and it's beautiful and lush, and then you look out the back door, and it's the rest of the town that's, you know, in poverty, Uh, and that's obedience, right? Oh, we don't want to look at the obedience stuff. No, the reality is to be a follower of Jesus Christ is to be trusting him for salvation and then to be obeying him in this process of sanctification, Yes, he's changing us, Philippians 1.6, that's his promise. He is going to keep on working on us to bring us to that perfection um, when Christ returns. But we have a part in that, uh, and that is to yield to the Spirit and to do what he says. So a disciple is a follower of Jesus. Following is trusting for salvation and obeying in sanctification Uh, And we call this whole life of doing that discipleship. It's the life of being a disciple. Uh, That's the part we want to look at because there are really two, two contexts where this discipleship, the life of following Jesus, happens. One we could call personal. You know, you get up in the morning or before you go to bed at night, you're reading your devotional book. You see a reference there. You're reading the scriptures. And then you're reading some thoughts on that or, you know. You're spending some time in prayer. Maybe you can sit in a chair by the fire early in the morning and pray, or maybe it's on the road heading to work and things are in your mind and you're kind of telling the Lord you need help with these things. That, that's your own kind of personal following. You are making this effort to be what you should be, to obey as you should obey. Uh, it's kind of the, the battle in your own mind, so to speak, uh, to do what the Lord wants you to do. But then there's the the corporate sense of discipleship because the Bible does tell us, you know, go into your closet and pray or pray without ceasing. It does tell us to be people of the word. But then it also says you doing that as a personal follower of Jesus are dropped into the context of all these other people trying to be followers of Jesus. And the design is that you all help each other. You start drawing lines of connection to all the people that you're engaged with for spiritual benefit, and now you have the New Testament teaching of the church with all the instructions of the one and others that demand that we be relational in our following of Jesus. So we would say, not only can you not be a disciple without regeneration, trusting in Christ, nor can you be a disciple purely on your own. There's an element of discipleship that is very much up to you. Nobody can make you, you know, treasure spiritual things. The old adage, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink kind of thing. So we're saying, yes, that's great that you're doing some things on your own, but that is not the sum total of discipleship. You don't get to check the box unless you are personally following I follow Jesus, and you are corporately working at discipleship. I follow Jesus with others. They're helping me, uh, and I'm helping them. Sometimes they're grabbing me by the arm and saying, come on, let's go, a little better. And other times I'm doing that to them. But we're following Jesus together. And it's that together, that corporate element of following that I want us to look at this morning uh, because we know from the Great Commission, it's, it's a constant chain of relationships. You be a disciple, yes, but now you make disciples of the nations. By baptizing them, that's, they identify with Christ. That's that first step of following. And by teaching them to do, that's that second step of following. So it's a constant chain of relationships. I follow Jesus, but I help someone else do it. Now, they are following Jesus, and they help someone else. And it multiplies down the line with every disciple made. They are relating to someone else, telling them what Jesus has said, and here's how we try to live that out. So the Great Commission is not accomplished by individual discovery and self-study. Rather, it is relational in its design. God could give everyone truth individually. He could reveal it to them and not need any of us to ever share the good news. But that's not the plan that he implemented. Um, He implemented a plan of you have the truth. Now, by the Spirit's leading, so that power's there, and it's there in the Great Commission. Jesus said, all authority is mine, and I'm sending you to tell others. So the power flows through you, but Jesus said, I'm I'm counting on you. You're my plan for others being discipled. Now, we're not saying God never in his own providence intervenes and without anybody sharing the gospel doesn't just assault someone with truth. Um, At least Paul on the road to Damascus is is a case in point. Not that Paul never heard from anyone else. But God said, okay, I'm stepping in here for a little extra care. Um, And there are plenty of missionary stories of, you know, tribes or communities that somehow have truth, and there's no outside witness there. And and still today in the Middle East, you'll hear much about dreams that have led people to Christ. And, And all of that doesn't need to be disputed or debated. It's within the realm of how God has dealt with people But we know that the normal plan that he instituted, the norm for gospel spread is those who have the good news are so excited about it, it just naturally kind of bleeds out on everyone else. So in 1 Corinthians 12, which is familiar to us, even in our recent study of commitment, we were here to see how the church serves one another. Uh, We want to try to look at some connections between discipleship and relationships, to just keep ringing this bell that, yes, I'm glad you read your Bible and pray and have an incredible walk with the Lord, um, but on the pop quiz each week, you would get half credit, like that, that's only half the story. The other half of the discipleship story is you are following Jesus with others, and we want to see somehow how that unfolds here in 1 Corinthians 12. So what is the connection between discipleship and relationships? There's going to be a lot of overlap because once you get into organic body life, you cannot help but having a lot of interrelationships. You can you can talk about the liver all day long. But you take that liver out of its context and you're going to be about done talking about it. It has just become very non-organic, a very technical study of just the liver. But as long as that liver's in you and still functioning, now all the interrelated study comes into play. So when we dive into 1 Corinthians 12 and this idea of here's the body of the church in its design, in its empowerment, in its gifting, in its purpose, these points are all going to kind of stick together, and and that's okay. Uh, We're just making observations so that when we're done, half hour from now, we have this in our mind like, oh yeah, discipleship, whenever I hear that, I need to be thinking, I need to follow, but I need to follow with others. Uh, The with others is the emphasis of 1 Corinthians 12. So Paul's concerned that the brothers in Corinth are not ignorant regarding this matter of grace that is given. Uh, remember in verse 1, it's just the spirituals, the spiritual things. That word gift isn't there yet. That'll show up in a couple verses later. So the, the, the this work of grace uh, that's happening, Paul says, I want you to, to know what grace looks like when it comes to you in the church. Uh, of course, it's under the lordship of Christ. We, we had looked at that in verses 2 and 3. And then verse 4, 5, and 6 there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, varieties of service, but the same Lord, varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And I want us to just think on that for a moment. God empowers all the gifts, services, and activities of the, all those in everyone. All the gifts, all the serving, all the activities in everyone. A double universal statement. Uh, making it absolutely clear that everything that happens in the lives of disciples in the church is God's design and by God's power. So we start in, in thinking of discipleship and relationships, we start with the premise of God's designed help in others. In other words, I'm telling you as a disciple, you need to relate to people in discipleship. You follow Jesus with others. And our first premise here is that God has designed that his help come through others. That means you can go to your prayer closet and beg God for help in victory over some struggle you're having. And you might hear nothing from God because he wants you to read the Bible and see in 1 Corinthians 12 that he's designed the church to be a help to you. He might be saying, I don't have anything else for you. I've given you the help, but you're ignoring it. I've poured out my grace through this means of my church, Holy Spirit-empowered believers with gifts for the common good of the body, and you're treating them like they're irrelevant, they're useless. Why are you praying for help on this matter when it's all around you? Those would be like the, the, the hard sayings of Jesus, to quote a book title uh, of an author that goes through the, the Gospels and finds things Jesus said, and like, man, that, that's hard to hear. Like, you got to grapple with this. But the reality is, we read the scriptures and we see how God wants to work, then we set it aside and we think, I don't know why things aren't working, and I just need to pray and ask God to help, and... We've just undermined the doctrine of the sufficient authority of Scripture, that it's all that we need for life and godliness. So come to the Scriptures and realize that God has designed, that his help would generally, and we could probably say most often come, through the means that he has unfolded in Scripture. And in 1 Corinthians 12, that is in the church. So do you assume that others in the church are God's help for you? Now, I mean, we know, right, Christ is our all in all. So yes, he is our help, but how, how do we get there? How do we love him more? How do we obey him more? And the Bible says that that's because the church is there. It's provoking you to love and to good works, exhorting you, challenging you, rebuking you at times. So do you assume that the great answer for some of your trouble, some of your need, is sitting in this room right now? And that more answers and more help are going to join us in the next hour. And maybe you need to start having conversations and asking people, you know, what have you seen in the Word lately that would help me with, and you lay out your scenario. Because if they don't have an answer for you, they can go home and think on that too. What does God's word say about, you know, dealing with a meddling mother-in-law or something, right? Does the Bible address that or not? Like, those are things that can weigh heavy on you if you've ever had a meddling mother-in-law. But the reality is there must be some kind of answer. And if I'm reading in, you know, Jeremiah for my Bible reading or something, I might not find the verses on mother-in-law's. And I might not know how to get from what I've been reading to that solution, but maybe someone else has been thinking and studying or has some experience and they walk in the Spirit and they might have some good answers. And God's help for you in that stress point was the church. You recognize that God's answer, God's help, might come through His people. Um, Alright, Roy? I
1: agree with what you've said. But, The problem is we have neglected this kind of discipleship in every fellowship I've had anything to do with. We end up having the word come across the pulpit and this is what you should do in this situation. And there's no interaction between the body to say, you know, I really worked at that and it didn't work. So we've got these answers that are not answers and we haven't lived in fellowship long enough to say, that isn't it. Struggle with me, brother. What is the answer? So we've got these statements that are, quote, truth, that really aren't, and we have no filter mechanism, but built by being in relationship with each other to prove out the really hard answers. So. So are we
0: kind of saying the same thing then?
1: I'm saying slightly different. The answer is in the church, but you may not be able to find it. You may have to wrestle with brothers and sisters towards. It.
0: Sure. Okay. Um, yeah, I think that's the I think that's the pooled collective wisdom of spirit-filled believers. Um, no one person may have the exact right answer, but the idea there is we're we're going to find the help, even if There is no fixing the mother-in-law problem, right? Because we all know there are plenty of problems, and we're picking on mother-in-laws. There are some problems that, okay, you know, you're left with as much as it lies in you, live peaceably with all men. It's like you can't fix them. You can't change them. It's not going away. So then the help in the body becomes not, well, here's how you can fix that. Tell her this, and I'm sure it'll all work out. Well, maybe it won't. But how can we now address your heart and your response and your faith that God knows you're stressed out by this. But now that's why we're saying ultimately, yes, God is our help. Um, It's just that so much of his grace comes to us through others. And all we're trying to do here is see that God empowers these gifts, services and activities in everyone. So there's like a live power source there, and your need just needs to start plugging in to this empowered source and realize, they can help me. Are they perfect? Will they have every answer? Do you often know more about some things than they do? Yes. But will you trust that something in them can be a help to you? Uh, That's what Corinthians is starting with. God-empowered gifts in everyone so let's, let's see everyone as the potential help for me. And, and then there's this other step where we could say, what if they have nothing to say? What, what if they say, I, I, have, I have no idea how to help you with that. I, I'm, I don't even know what to say. And what if you just said, well, can you at least pray, right? Because that's like the lowest thing on the totem pole in our minds, right? Can you at least do this? So what if that's all that they did. Suddenly, like, we're kind of betraying the fact that we might not esteem even that as sufficient. So, what if we just knew that they're praying and, okay, there's the help. There's the answer. I can press on. Uh, let's see that God has empowered all the people of his church to offer something for us. I saw a hand somewhere. Uh, yeah, Jared.
1: Would two examples of what you're talking about the one, Moses, where they held up his arms. So that's in the positive sense. And then Nathan and David in the positive-negative positive, negative sense.
0: Right, so a couple of examples. Uh, Moses up on the mountain, Joshua's down in the valley fighting the Amalekites, Exodus 17. And when Moses' arms are up in the air, they're winning the battle. When he gets tired and puts them down, whoa, the momentum shifts and the Israelites are driven back. And so Aaron and her um, stand next to him and kind of hold up his arms, a very kind of non-spiritual action, right? They didn't go to the prayer closet or fast or put on sackcloth, though those things would be appropriate at times. In this moment, what was appropriate was literally just an act of service, like support the weak, help him keep his arms up for the good of the greater... Cause that was going on on the battlefield. The other example is the prophet Nathan coming and speaking truth to his friend, except it wasn't the truth that was, you know, hey, keep up the good work. It was, no, you're the betraying, murderous man of my story that I just told. Um, and it was the confronting with truth. But in both illustrations, and you could probably think of others, God's people were the help that was needed to get somebody further down the path of what God said was the right direction. In David's case, steering him back to it. Uh, In Moses's case, keeping him on that path to victory. So God has empowered everyone uh, to be a help to us. It continues then in verse 7 and kind of the a theme phrase to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good, for the common good. So God's design for my personal growth, for my obedience as a member of the body is that it would help others. Yes, God wants to make me more and more like Christ, but that doesn't happen in isolation. Uh, God isn't working on just millions of individual cases and always, you know, pulling the next folder. What do they need? Okay. No, it's the bride of Christ. It's his church. And so, yes, we're individuals, but we're individuals that make up the, the body of Christ. And so our sanctification is for the common good of the church. Your sanctification is for the common good because when you treasure Christ more, when you're imitating him more, it's going to be a help to the rest of us. So you cannot prosper spiritually without it being for the good of the church. It's for the common good that the spirit is working in you. Common good emerges then in relationships. Or in our text, it's in the language of biology. In biology, we would talk about Cells forming tissues, forming organs, forming systems, and now you have a whole body. That's great. So you could study the digestive system and this part and this part and this part and this function and, you know, this stuff squeezed into the stomach to digest this and all those things. And when your stomach isn't working well or the esophagus is giving you trouble, you know, we want to know how this digestive system works because it's it's all for the common good. And you disrupt that common good. You know, hiatal hernia, and you don't swallow real well. Ulcer in your stomach and causing you trouble. It, immediately you know what the common bad is. The common good is, let's see the doctor get this treated and get back to what? The, kind of the normal, to health. And so the language of health and Wholeness reminds us that the whole point is the common good. So your struggle this week with temptation and the scriptures that helped you fight off wrong thinking, that helped you rein in angry words and give a soft answer, whatever it was, that that spiritual battle that produced spiritual success, yes, is so that you will be more like Christ, but it's also for the common good. The Spirit is working in us so that there will be health in the whole body. You might be the hand or the foot or the eye or the ear, as 1 Corinthians 12 says. And your health is for the common good. It's so that the whole body functions well. We press on. Verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Here's a new description, but it's not unlike what we've already heard. But now it's very clearly that in the will of God, by the Holy Spirit, um, he has designed our individual strengths for the common good, So it keeps steering us down these paths of thinking, yes, individual, variety of gifts, variety of services, variety of activities, but for the common good, the individual as part of the whole. And now we see this is God's will. Not merely independent success in the Christian life, but the whole body prospering. Ephesians 4 says something similar. God gave gifts, so same kind of language, the apostles, prophets, pastor, teachers, evangelists. And he did that so that the whole body now would be equipped to do the work of the ministry and so that the whole body would grow up into that measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He's not looking for Paul in all of his spirituality to race on ahead and leave everybody in the dirt oh, look at that man, Paul, he's awesome. No, the whole point was, no, equip the church so that the whole body grows up into him. It's a collective growth. Christ does not say that he wants to present you individually. His highest end is to present Adam faultless before the throne with exceeding joy. No, it's the bride. It's the whole church. He's bringing us all together along, and eventually he will make us spotless and without blemish. But that's all of us. It's not, look at me, I finished ahead of you. It's not enter into heaven and the presence of his joy looking back saying, look at those bums back there, you know? They had a lot more work of sanctification to do. I was way ahead of them. That's not the nature of heaven. The nature of heaven is Christ and what he's done for me. And the me in Revelation is that thunderous voice of the redeemed. My voice just lost in this roar of mighty voices, recognizing what Christ has done. So the will of God is not independent success in the Christian life alone, but also how that success helps others to follow Jesus. The alternative is what's pictured in verses 17 to 19, this idea of the whole body being an eye. Some of you know the name Mike Wazowski, right? Famous what? theologian? No, 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 a famous animated character who's basically all eyeball, right? That doesn't work. That's not normal, okay? So the, the scriptures are kind of presenting this, if the whole body were an eye, where's the hearing? Like, that, no, that's absurd. It's a picture of absurdity that kind of makes us smile. It, like, that That can't happen. Um Well, then recognize that in the will of God, he did not make us all eyes. He made us uniquely different. And and too often that difference means, well, they can't help me because I I need such and such. No, you need the whole body. And God's will is that they not be all the same. And so recognize the huge variety of help that comes in your following Jesus, your discipleship, because here's the whole toolbox, all the different resources, um, and it's as he wills. God's will is mutual, dependent relationships in the church. You know that the codependency becomes a negative thing in our psychological world, you know, and, and we understand that. We understand the validity of that kind of a label, but just know that Biblically speaking, and not using that psychological example of what a codependent person would be, um, in, in a biblical sense, we are supposed to have a spirit of dependency on others. We're supposed to recognize from 1 Corinthians 12 that that I need these other body parts if I am going to know full health. Um, Because if one part suffers, we're going to see the whole body suffers. And you know that from your health record. Whatever your trouble spot has been, the body's not happy when a part is suffering. That means there is a dependency on the other parts. And that's not a bad thing. This is God's design so that you aren't alone. But it takes some humility to recognize sometimes our need. We see, well, really, 14 to 26, the whole, the whole argument there of illustration from a physical body is just reminding us of the general word health. So we had nine different men do the nine different chapters of nine marks of a healthy church. And that's a fitting description. A body should be healthy, and if the church is a body, then we can call the church healthy or unhealthy. Um, Every every health conversation of this week, then, can remind you that my part in the body is contributing to its health, and I'd better be aware of unhealthy parts so I can help them be healthy, because it's my body. I'm a part of it. We're in this for the common good. There are differences of body parts. The ear isn't the foot. The eye is not the hand, it says. And this helps us do some thinking about our relationships. They should not be solely defined by commonality. All right? We're, we're looking at the, the Chiefs Stadium, and the, there is a commonality that is easily found. Like people easily identify on Red Friday or whatever with uh, a commonality they have. A common interest, a common value, a common kind of spirit of camaraderie. Yes, Kansas City chiefs. And you would think that with the spirit of Red Friday and the events of Sunday, there would never be any crime in our city, right? Because we're all together. Not really. Um, Doesn't bleed over when it really rubber meets the road and there's still crime and assault and robbery and everything else because the commonality was quite surface. It was just around something temporal and passing. Our relationships cannot be tied to just commonality. You know what? This church doesn't really have a lot of people my age, uh, so I need to go somewhere else. Or, um, oh, we have, we have a group in our church. Uh, we, we, we do a lot together because we're all kind of the, have young kids, Well, well, of course there's a common bond. Just natural in the stage of life, you're going to have people in those stages that you can relate to quite readily. But the whole body isn't made up of ears. And so recognize that you can't just hang out with the ears if you're an ear. You can't just talk foot stuff if you're a foot. You have to recognize that all the relationships of the body matter. So it's just a little reminder that Commonality isn't wrong. To the contrary, it's quite natural to our humanity. We see people in some similarity, and it's easy to relate to them. But is there anything in a Christian's life that that speaks to having something in common beyond my kid's nine, and so is yours? Or what? You're in your 30s? So am I. No, No, the world can do that. Our commonality is supposed to be we're following the same teacher, and that becomes significant. So if you're 78, you can be a help to me if I'm 28, because our commonality, we relate on something more than age. You know, you grew up before there were cell phones. Whoa, you must be really old, right? That's... (laughs) Remember when the microwave came out? Yeah, okay, we just cut a lot of people out right there. like we have nothing in common if you don't remember the first microwave coming out. Um, just just make sure you you have a you know a portfolio of relationships in the church that got a few hands in there. I got some ears, got a spleen down here. I've got some feet. I, it's all of it because our commonality is, We're all trying to follow Christ together. And the different ages and abilities and interests and stages of life, all of that is natural, and you're going to have that easily. The text is reminding us you got to work hard lest the animosity starts building up. And you start hearing that in the text where one part says, well, if I'm not this, then i well, fine. Then I just won't. I guess I'm not appreciated. And no, no, don't. Stop. Finding what's in common and therein lies your security. Instead, recognize we're a body. We're all in this together. Those differences are okay. They're designed. They're good. Uh, Our bond is more than just temporal things. Let's go deeper than that. Verse 21 and 22. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. This is interesting because this defies the physical body. The brain does not function this way. You, you talk to soldiers or somebody with a bad injury, and they have to choose to allow the doctor to amputate, and it is a psychological battle. You know, the foot can be mangled. I read the the long story of Alex Smith, the once Chiefs quarterback, who snapped both the bones in his leg when he was tackled in a game. I, I mean, we're talking dozens of operations. There was nothing left of muscle on his leg by the time the bacteria ate it away. He literally had a bone, and they had to graft muscle and tendon and ligament to rebuild a human calf muscle. At one point, they were were asking him if he would let them save his life and amputate his leg, And, and he couldn't do it. Death is staring him in the face, and he could not make the choice to sign a paper and say, cut it off. So Paul is saying, in a sense, this is unnatural, that we look around the crowd at our church and we disdain certain people because they're different. It's unnatural for us to say, well, I'm sure they could never be a help to me. Or I don't know what their problem is. I don't even know why they come to this church. It's unnatural for the head to say, I don't need the foot. It's completely unnatural. It defies the the way God has made us to, to want to be whole and well. So we can't do that, Paul's saying. It's unnatural. Verse 22, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. They're for the common good. So on the contrary, this means that at times, we need to hear this rebuke, or we need to feel this personal accountability in the relationships of discipleship. Some of you are prone to think, for various reasons, not even all sinful, it may just be the way you are, that you just don't need people. It could be, you know, the the stereotypical extrovert-introvert, and you just think, well, I, I I I just don't need people. It could be prone to sinful arrogance. I'm better than they are, they can't help me. I've been a Christian a lot longer. could be the the pastoral, like, oh, I don't have any problems, so I can't, I can't say I have a problem because I'm supposed to be better than you. There could be a lot of influence as to why we would say, I don't, I don't need anybody. It may just be our pride. We, we want to appear like we're well. So even when the need is obvious and people are begging us, hey, how can I help you? What can I do for you? And we find ourselves saying, I'll be okay. I don't need anything. That sounds quite harmless, but the Bible answer is oh, to the contrary, you do need them. So don't find yourself saying, I don't need people or I don't know if they could really help me. To the contrary, they can. That's God's design. You need relationships in your effort to follow Jesus. And so mark those words on the contrary because I think they'll hang over us and remind us, wait a minute, I I can't just dismiss what God has said about the help that comes in other relationships. God builds on that in verses 24 and 25 by saying, he has so composed the body that there may be no division. He has so composed the body, verse 24, the purpose in verse 25, that there may be no division in the body. He got it right. He designed it in such a way that there would be no division because every part is necessary and every part is for the common good. You know, scientists still kind of struggle with a couple of little parts of the body, like we're not really sure what it does. We keep taking out the appendix. I mean, not over and over for the same person, but we keep taking it out of people, but we're not really sure what it does. Like, hopefully they won't need that. They seem to get by without it. But God's made it really clear in the church that every part is indispensable. He's composed it so that there would be no division. We tend to think that the great danger of multiple viewpoints and relationships in the church is division. God says exactly the opposite. The great hope of unity and diversity of the church is found in its design. It's designed to work together. Nobody says, oh man, this body is a walking disaster because there is the possibility that things could be amputated. No, we we expect that it's a unity. It's going to work together. We're actually a little put out when the back hurts when you get out of bed in the morning because we're expecting everything to work well. That's what God said. I've designed it so that there would be no division. Division and disunity only happens because we lose track of following Jesus, myself, and following Jesus with others. And we devalue God's help to us in following him, and therein lies the beginning of division. Study out, again, this familiar passage, and then come to that conclusion, wait, God made us all different, different gifts, different services, different activities, we're different body parts. Different, 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 different. It sounds like the design is we're going to all be different. And he says, no, you're all different so that there would be unity. And it makes us just stop and think a minute until we come to the illustration, the body. And we realize, of course, it can all work as a unified organism because of all the different parts doing what they do. Verse 27. One last clue here. Now you are the body of Christ. That's the plurality you. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So we're not denying the, the individual need for discipleship. You follow Jesus. You be your part. But you be your part as part of the whole body. But here's the lesson. A bunch of healthy relationships isn't the end of the story. The end of 1 Corinthians 12 isn't just good, you all get along. Healthy relationships. We fixed that mother in law problem, right? And you have multiple age groups and a portfolio of relationships. Good. No, the end of the story is you are the body of Christ. So there's a greater purpose we do in our relationships is in order to magnify Christ who is on display in his body. In other words, pursue relationships not because you're a crazy extrovert, but because it will demonstrate how God relates to us in Christ. God sent Christ to us. Yes, so that we would follow him in salvation, so that we would follow him in our sanctification, so that we'd become more like him. And in doing so, our following of him, we're helping others to follow him. So why is it all about him? Because that's what God said he was going to do. He's going to work all things for our good, Romans eight twenty eight. Well, what is that good? The good is that we would all come to this conformity to his son, the very next verse says. God so loves his son that he has decided that he's going to make all of us look exactly like him. If not in this life, then certainly when Christ returns. First John even says, when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. That's the fulfillment of Philippians 1.6. He who began the good work will complete it in you in the day of Jesus Christ. When he appears, we'll be like him. We'll see him as he is, and then we'll glance quickly to ourselves and realize we're the spitting image. We've put off the corruption, the sin, and now we're like Christ. Finally, battle over. But until then... We struggle to follow Christ, but we do it together in relationship. The foot just can't run on ahead. The ear doesn't go on. The eye, No, the body does. So labor this week. Commit to discipleship. You follow Jesus. But know that you're called to follow Jesus with others. Take someone with you, and maybe once in a while, let somebody else take you with them but let's get on down this road together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Uh, This is a familiar passage, but it it freshly stirs us up to see one another in this room as good gifts, your gifts to us. May we give and receive this week. May we relate to one another with, with a spiritual nuance that doesn't eliminate all of the small talk of life, but it certainly adds significance to it. And so take us to that level of spiritually helping each other to follow you. Uh, And we ask this so that the one that we're following would be exalted, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.